Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Somebody Call a Doctor, a podcast stemmed in curiosity, where we interview new PhDs and PhD candidates to better understand the diverse research topics being studied and talk about the impact their outcomes will have on technology and society. I'm your host, Colin Andrews. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Rivers Ingersoll about hummingbirds. Dr. Rivers Ingersoll is a recent PhD in mechanical engineering at Stanford. His thesis focused on measuring and understanding the aerodynamic forces of hovering hummingbirds and bats. The project aimed to make animal research less invasive, increase our understanding of extreme muscle functions, and improve the design of bird-inspired flying robots. We'll be talking about his thesis and its implications, the process of getting a PhD, and ask him why you'd call him if somebody said, somebody call a doctor. And now, welcome Rivers. Really appreciate you taking the time for this. Really just kind of interested to see what, what it means to you and why, why it's important. Yeah. I, I've been talking to more and more people who are getting PhDs um, and just doing just incredible things with it. So I, I wanted to find a way to kind of explore what they're doing in a way that just lets them talk about it, especially newly minted PhDs. Like, what do you actually go do with some of this more theoretical research? Why don't you give just a quick background? Yeah. So uh, my name is Rivers Ingersoll. I just finished my PhD at Stanford University in mechanical engineering. Uh, our lab studies bird flight and then builds robots that fly like birds. Hmm. So we're, in, we're an engineering lab, but we uh, kind of collaborate with a lot of biologists as well as work on a lot of biological questions. So we use our kind of engineering background and kind of mechanical design uh, skills and technical training to analyze bird flight from kind of a robotic or like airplane perspective so we kind of treat the wing like an airplane and we can apply the same equations that we learn in our aerodynamic classes to explain how the birds are flying and it kind of allows us to kind of jump into this interdisciplinary field and kind of discover a little bit more about uh, how these different birds insects and bats are flying and then the second part of the lab is we also build robots that then use that our knowledge of how these animals are flying to build flapping microwave vehicles. So instead of just having a fixed wing uh, or like a quadcopter design, we actually build uh, kind of ornithopters, basically uh, robots that flap their wings like birds. That's so cool. Most of my work uh, on hummingbirds. Uh, at the end of my PhD, I started to work with bats a little bit. The book of my PhD was kind of designing a new method to measure the forces of hovering hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are kind of one of the only birds that can hover sustained. They flap their wings at around like 40 times a second. So uh, they have like a, a downstroke where they push their wings forward and they actually invert their wings on the upstroke and push air down on both the downstroke and the upstroke. Hmm. So the big uh, biological question with that is how do they, as they invert their wing on the upstroke, and use the back side of the wing. Are they using that to generate kind of vertical force, vertical lift? Over each wing beat, uh, any kind of animal that's flying has to generate the amount of vertical force equal to its weight uh, to stay hovering. They don't generate a constant vertical force equal to its weight like a helicopter would. They mm. actually have to generate kind of a hump of vertical force in the downstroke. And then most birds don't really generate any vertical force in the upstroke. They kind of just pull their wings up. So most of them do it all the downstroke. Yeah, hummingbirds kind of evolved this kind of active upstroke, uh, it's called, 
where they invert their wings and also push air down on the upstroke. So we really want to quantify this and see if we can measure it. So are hummingbirds and bats the only animals that do the upstroke? So insects do. Hovering flight has evolved three times. Insects, hummingbirds, and then nectar bats. But the reason they evolved the ability to hover is they can reach the energy-rich resources of like nectar and flowers. Hmm. So insects, you see often see them uh, flying from flowers, making the nectar, and that's kind of a symbiotic relationship with the plants because then the insects pollinate the flowers as they go to different flowers and similar with hummingbirds to get like pollen on their beak and they as they go to different flowers it pollinates them and then bats do the same thing. So are there a lot of similarities in that um the upstroke? Is that is that the reason they're able to hover? Uh so so one of my, my recent paper it's called Biomechanics of Hover Performance in Neotropical Hummingbirds versus Bats. So we went down to Costa Rica for uh ten weeks. Oh, on a field ten study. weeks? That's and awesome. We, uh, and we studied 17 different hummingbird species and three bat species, uh, over 100 individuals in total. And we were kind of comparing how the different hummingbirds and bat species uh, hover, so how much lift they generate on the downstroke versus the upstroke, hmm. and how they move their wings. So the thing we found is that hummingbirds, yeah, they do invert their wings on the upstroke, and they have what we call it a negative angle of attack, where as they move their wing backward, it's like a inverted wing. Uh, so similarly, we found that the nectar bats also invert their wings on the upstroke. And in particular, the nectar bats invert their wings more than the fruit bats, which makes sense from that kind of evolutionary perspective where the animals that need to hover in front of flowers to drink nectar would evolve the ability to hover uh, more exactly efficiently. So, so, is so that's then... what we found in the bats and the, the hummingbirds, and that matches what previous studies have found for uh, insects. So is that necessary for an animal to hover? Are there any examples where an upstroke no, isn't? It's, yeah, it's not necessary. There are some birds that can like hover briefly. Uh, they don't necessarily hover like sustained for a long time, but they don't really put their wings backwards on the upstroke. Hmm. I'm thinking like se- most, seagulls at the beach, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So also, like, there's some birds called like, a kite, and they're known hover in the in the air like with a wind blowing at them they can kind of beat their wings really fast to kind of a temporary hover yeah. and then they'll be looking for some like a mouse or something on the ground go down and eat it but hummingbirds really hover like sustained for a long period of time because you, you need to kind of be, be like that if you're drinking nectar from flowers so what, what's the um like the size of the hummingbirds versus the bats and how, how do those the way that they actually exert force how does that change yeah the hummingbirds that we measured were Anywhere from two grams, and then the largest species were around uh, like 12 grams. And then for the bats, the small species was also around 11 grams, and the largest species was around 14 grams. So the bats were on the heavier side. These are really small nectar bats. Other bat species are much larger than this. So the hummingbirds, we dealt with them, they're around like 2.2 grams at the lowest. So hummingbirds, when they flap their wings, it's more in a kind of a, almost a figure eight pattern. Hmm. I guess like an infinity pattern, and the bats kind of have more of a, a tilted stroke plane as they beat their wings through. Interesting. And, and the, the paper was saying that there's um, difference in like the length of the wings itself because of the way yeah, that they... Yeah, so, so what we found is the different ways to hover more energetically efficiently. So for hummingbirds to be more efficient, they generate this split, a bunch of lift on the 
upstroke as well as the downstroke. So hummingbirds generate around a quarter of their weight support on the upstroke and then three quarters on the downstroke, whereas bats probably generate a much less amount on the upstroke. But to compensate for that, bats have kind of larger wings. So the larger surface area of their wings uh, allows them to generate far less than hummingbirds with the much smaller wings. Does that change the amount of energy they're actually expending? Yes. We kind of quantify it using induced power, and induced power is basically looking at how much momentum the animal has to transfer to the air hmm. to kind of uh, blow the air down. Because like due to Newton's laws, you have to transfer momentum down so the animal can stay up. So look at how much momentum they transfer down over the wing beat. And the different ways to be energetically efficient in that respect are to either generate a constant thrust over the wing beat or to have very, very large wings relative to your body weight. So the bats have much larger wings relative to their body weight, whereas hummingbirds compensate by generating more constant thrust over their wing beat. So is one of them more efficient? The thing we found is this kind of induced power is very similar between the hummingbirds and the bats. So basically found two different ways to fly, to hover efficiently. That's crazy. That's so cool. Um, but but the, the actual measuring that you did. Yeah. Yeah. So I can talk a little bit about how we measure the, uh, the force. The aerodynamic force platform. And basically it's a very sensitive scale. So if you have a regular like household scale and a bird sitting on the scale, it will read the weight of the bird. But if the bird is hovering over the scale, it creates a high pressure underneath as it flaps its wings. And if the scale is directly under the bird, it'll measure that pressure. If you actually enclose this bird in an, an enclosed volume, we call it a flight chamber, with a scale on bottom and top of the bird, then by measuring that pressure on the bottom and top plate, it equals the vertical force that the animal is generating as it's hovering. So it's basically a really sensitive scale that measures that force. So if you use a regular like kind of household scale, it's not sensitive enough to measure the fluctuations of pressure, which uh, fluctuate like 40 times a second for these hummingbirds. Wow. So we, we kind of developed these sensitive carbon fiber uh, scales that we manufacture ourselves and then have these super sensitive force sensors underneath that can measure these super quick pressure fluctuations. So we have these carbon fiber scales on bottom and top of this half meter by half meter by half meter closed like cube flight chamber yeah. that these, these scales kind of integrate the pressure on bottom and top. And that's equal to the instantaneous force that these birds and bats are generating. And that's so interesting. So, so the actual design of this, these pressure plates was part of your thesis as well? Yeah, so that was my first probably two or three years of my thesis was designing it. We had a lot of ideas that we built and then didn't work and we had to iterate and use different sensors. And most of my PhD was kind of developing this measurement method. That's hmm. kind of where all the engineering is. And then we want to apply it to something. So uh, hummingbirds are kind of one of the, the best kind of cases to apply it to. Yeah, especially because you can go to the, Costa Rica. One, <laughs> yeah, they're one of the lightest birds, and also they flap the fastest. So kind of the two things we're up against is the high frequencies are hard because your whole entire setup has to be really stiff and measure these super high frequency forces. But then also, if the weight is so small, they're very low amplitude forces. Your signal noise ratio has to be high enough so you can really isolate the forces. So you're dealing with all these different noise from the, hmm. like, uh, any kind of an airplane would fly overhead, you'd see that in the sensors. Any kind of a car would drive up, you'd see a bunch of noise in the sensors. 
you really have to work hard to isolate a signal of the hummingbird flying from the external noise sources. That's incredible. Basically, the, the pressure the pressure plates, the force plates, are really just really sensitive microphones because sound is pressure waves. So we have very sensitive microphones measuring these pressure waves. So any other external noise will affect the uh, the setup. That's not good if you want to find the frequencies by the hummingbird and not by external forces. Yeah. So there's obvious applications of, of the work with the hummingbirds, understanding how they can go into like aerial robots. Like you're talking about before, but what about the pressure plates? What what other applications could those be used for? Yeah, so one of the really exciting things in uh, kind of the scientific community, and especially the biomechanics community, is you can develop new measurement methods, and then you publish papers on that and kind of show how you design the new uh, experimental method, and then other labs will kind of take that and they'll build off it, and maybe they'll have other ideas. They'll apply to different organisms. Maybe they'll apply it to fish swimming or oh, cool. other kind of birds or insects. And they kind of have to tweak it a little bit for their organism of choice. But the general kind of framework of like new measurement methods, well, I'm really excited about that to kind of see where other, other labs kind of push it. And like in the past, there have been ways to kind of measure forces of flying animals, but a lot of them, uh, are either less accurate or more invasive. For example, some researchers have implanted strain gauges uh, on the bones of animals, which is kind of like a surgical procedure. Oh, wow. And then they can measure the, the strain in the bone as it's flapping, and then you kind of can correlate that to uh, a force that the bird's uh, applying. Other times, scientists have used particle image velocimetry, which uh, is called PIV, where basically you seed the air with a bunch of micron-sized oil droplets, and then you can shine a laser sheet in a plane, like underneath a bird, and you measure the vorticity, basically how the this particle, the illuminated particles are like swirling around, and from that you can calculate the the force, the lift that was generated, and each kind of wing beat. So you use multiple high speed cameras to film this laser plane of illuminated particles. Well, it seems like that so might actually affect the way they fly, though. Yeah, so there's there's trade offs to all these methods and. I mean, science is all about trying the best you can at the moment. Like, I mean, the results that they got in the earlier studies with the particle image velocimetry are still very close to the results that we're getting with our measurements, but we can get more kind of fine-tuned traces over the whole entire wing beat of how the force is generated instead of just like a lump of like the downstroke and the upstroke. And other, more recently, some of the best methods using computational fluid dynamics, so they basically get a really accurate model of the animal's wing as it's flying, and then you do a computational model to simulate how all the, the air is moving. And that's kind of the direction things are going, but it's very hard. You have to have a really accurate kind of three-dimensional model of the wing to make sure your eventual uh, forces are accurate and no computational errors. And that changes like hummingbird to hummingbird, I'm, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, yep. And it's like on the wings, the feathers are so complex that the current, like, three-dimensional model of a wing shape uh, is really hard to get very accurately. Hmm. So a lot of studies use kind of very simpler wing shapes. Huh. So we're also also really interested in field people working on how to kind of quantify the three-dimensional structure of the wing as it's morphing uh, and it's flying. So there's other products in our lab working on that. 
So is that what uh, some of the research looked like it had, a lot of the video edit or video capture? And yeah. That? One of the things enabling all these animal biomechanic experiments is improvements in force sensing technology as well as high-speed video. So now due to like military uh, applications, there's a lot of really uh, fancy high-speed video uh, that can record for a, a small period of time, but it's super high frame rate and super high resolution. So we kind of can use this technology to study animal flight. Hmm. So one of the kind of issues in uh, small biomechanics uh, research is that it's very manually and time intensive in terms of analyzing the data. For example, my hummingbird experiments in four seconds, we'd have five high cameras. Each camera would record 10 gigabytes of data. In four, in four seconds? seconds. Oh my gosh. Yeah, 2,000 frames a second. So we have 50 gigabytes of data in four seconds. And we have to then analyze all that. What most people in the field do is calibrate all the cameras so you know they are in 3D space. And then you click a point on like a wingtip in each camera view. And then it's all calibrated exactly. So then it knows in a three-dimensional coordinate system where the wingtip is. And then you go through each frame and you do the same thing on the wingtip. And you do all the different points on the wing. So it's very time intensive. And there's not too much automation. There's not really nice marker points on the wing. One thing that I'm really excited in the field is more kind of automated image processing methods. So it'll be cool in the next like 10 years how people can automate this image processing to save a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like a smaller data set in terms of just like 100 hummingbirds to be able to build and train a model that might be able to do that. Yep. Machine learning technology is also something that could be done to yeah. look at how these like super high videos and kind of analyze, quantify them. So, so anything outside of biology or, or military applications that you think? Yeah. You know, One of the other interesting things about kind of our lab is we're really into like, explaining our research to the general public through like media or outreach. For example, two summers ago, I worked on a documentary by the California Academy of Science, and it's like a little mini six-minute long documentary about how I kind of do my experiments, and it turned into a lesson plan for students. So different elementary school teachers can go on the California Academy of Science website and watch this video they made about my experiment. So I guess it's kind of making younger children interested in kind of the engineering side of birds as well as just how flight is possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're more interested in science or engineering. And then another interesting uh, application for example, my Costa Rica work on all these different species in the neotropics of bats and hummingbirds kind of sheds a new light on the biodiversity we have down there hmm. and kind of showing the world maybe it'll help people have more appreciation for protecting the biodiversity. We have all these different species. We have all these different high speed videos showing all these different uh, hummingbirds uh, that are flying, hovering. So if we kind of can show that to more people. They're more excited about that. Maybe they'll travel down there more. and they'll, There's a big thing uh, down there called ecotourism. Mm -hmm. Basically, a lot of national preserve sites are funded by ecotourism. So people, birders will come in there and they'll go on tours and they'll use binoculars, look at birds, and then they pay money for the lodging. And that money goes to support kind of preserving the, uh, the forest. So there's really a trade-off in some of these developing countries about do you preserve a lot of these natural resources and forests? And how can you kind of 
bring money towards the community by preserving them. That's great. And we'll, we'll definitely link the uh, videos somewhere because there's some yeah. really, really cool videos of, of hummingbirds in slow motion. Great. What, what about the, um, the actual force sensing? Um, is that being used? I know like with, with your new job and everything like that, are, are you using that sort of thing? Uh, so I don't know. I am very separated from any animal uh, biomechanics stuff right now. But uh, there are some people in my uh, Stanford lab that are using a similar method, even continuing my project. And I can't really touch upon the exact experiments they're doing now because uh, they're still yet to be published. But uh, I'm definitely going to be still tied into that and maybe helping get one or two more papers uh, through over the next few years. But yeah, eventually, as I said before, uh, other labs from all over the world will probably start using similar methods, and I'd love to keep up to date with all that. So are there any other disciplines that you got exposure to that either have a lot of overlap or that you're really excited about in their applications? When I was down in Costa Rica, it was very uh, collaborative between the Stanford Ecology Department. So they've been going down to this field site in Costa Rica every year for the past 10 years, and they do bird banding. So basically they wake up every morning, by sunrise, they set up all these bird nets, and they catch over 100 birds a day. They put a little aluminum band on the ankle and they, with a number on it, and they can track recaptures over time at different field sites. Over this huge, large data set, they gather in coffee plantations, primary forests, secondary forests. They can see how different species are adapting to climate change and deforestation. So that was really interesting to kind of be around all these ecologists for the whole field study and learn about kind of their interests. But then also they were able to collaborate with them in a sense where we could split the cost of the field study hmm. between all the labs. And then we could use a few of the hummingbirds that they catch each day and we bring to the lab and we would train them to fly in a little box to get their data of how they're hovering and then release them the day. So it was a great to kind of combine like those three or four different uh, studies going on at the same time with the same kind of data set affecting the same birds. So it was good to kind of be more efficient in that respect. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Rivers Ingersoll about his research at Stanford, measuring the aerodynamic forces of hummingbirds and bats and the implications on other fields of research and development, like the precise measurement of the movements of other organisms and more efficient aerial robots. For more information on Rivers and his hummingbirds, check out our website, somebodycallaphd.com, for links to his published papers and articles by National Geographic, The Economist, The New York Times, and others. We'll change course and talk about the process of getting a PhD, and Rivers will talk about what emergency situation usually results in a phone call to him. We don't know anything about the process of getting a PhD or how funding works, anything like that. Do you mind talking just a little yeah. bit about your experience? Yeah, yeah. The process of getting a PhD varies widely by school, by department, and by kind of even by a specific lab in the department. So I guess the first step is to, when you're an undergrad, understand if you're really interested in the topics that you're learning in more detail. Because in undergrad, you learn about a lot of things on a very like higher level, but there's so much more detail behind each equation and how it's derived. And if you really find yourself interested in that, then maybe staying for grad school longer for a PhD is right for you. Uh, I would suggest 
starting doing research in the lab over the summers or even during the school year. Uh, basically, talk to a professor you got a class with. Hopefully, you raise your hand, ask a few questions so he hmm. knows you, and then see if you can like rotate in his lab for a summer. Usually, the first summer might be kind of an unpaid research uh, assistantship. Or maybe some schools have programs where uh, the school will pay you, but or credit or it's something. Kind of, it's, it's hard to kind of get. Yeah, you get credit time, but it's hard to really get necessarily paid for some of these early research experiences because you're really just learning. So you kind of get an idea of what it's like. If you like that, then maybe next summer you can start doing more research. I encourage you to like go to as many different labs. The most important thing is having letters of recommendations from professors uh, that you've been researched with. So that's why it's really important to. Start doing research early and work in a few different labs so you can get a lot of good recommendations. And they also give you good advice about what labs to apply to or like what schools to apply to, what areas you want to get into. How does that actually work with uh, finding a professor that's doing something you're interested in? It, it seems less like there's you can go and kind of pick your topic. I'm sure that happens sometimes. Yeah. So it really depends on if you have a specific field in mind or a specific lab in mind. I know some people, they came to grad school, they knew the professor they wanted to work with. They knew, like, the exact product they wanted to work on. So in that respect, you kind of contact the professor early, and it might be easier to, like, get into that specific lab. Because professors have the ability to accept any student they want. If you can find a professor beforehand that you know or you work with, they can let you into any grad school. But the other thing you can do that a lot of people do is you just apply to a bunch of grad schools, do a little bit of research about what kind of work they're doing and talk about that in your application that day. And then uh, once you get to the university, you can kind of rotate through a few different labs and find specific labs you want to join. The, the goal on, on for this, for somebody called a doctor, is to talk to as many different types of PhDs as well. So I'd, I'll be really interested to hear how that changes by different specialties as well. And, and what about the actual, so like, um, but going into getting your thesis and actually defending your thesis, we all hear that. And then the difference between like um, just starting your uh, your PhD, being a candidate, and then actually getting it. Yeah. So at least in Stanford, it kind of works out how everyone in the mechanical engineering department comes in as a, a master student. So you have to kind of rotate through your labs while you're taking your uh, normal engineering classes and kind of prove yourself through professors have them take you on for the PhD. So then after they have a first year, if you find a lab, you really kind of fit in well, you work in that lab for the summer. And then the second year, you kind of take the qualifying exam, which is basically you take a, a test or three, three tests in three different subjects uh, that kind of correlate to some of the classes that you've taken. And you have to pass the qualifying exam. And once you pass the qualifying exam, you're like a PhD candidate. So then you kind of work on, you still take classes, but you work on your research a little more. Uh, maybe you take less classes. Yeah. I'm sure it varies so, so much by your years. program and yeah. everything too. So you do that for a few years, doing experiments, writing papers, and eventually you have a bunch of papers you've written and you kind of put that together in a coherent story and that's kind of your thesis. Uh, and then you have different professors on your defense committee. Hmm. So you have an oral defense and then a written defense. The oral defense is you stand up in front of five professors, you give that an hour-long presentation about your research, 
they ask a few questions, people's audience ask some questions. Uh, that's kind of the easy part. And then afterwards, it's kind of the closed session where all the audience will leave each other, the five professors, and they ask you more like kind of tough questions. That's kind of more of the defense part. Make sure, besides your presentation, you also know a little bit more background and answer some more uh, like details about your research. After you pass that, then you have the written defense, which is basically your thesis document, and you kind of write it up in a 100, 200-page document, Jeez, basically really? all your papers together, maybe some uh, like new parts you write that connect the different studies you've done, uh, and then some extra kind of methods maybe you haven't published, and then you get that kind of signed off by all professors, and then you're done. Wow. I think the, the scariest part of that process sounds like those three exams in the middle. Where yeah, it's, no, that's definitely, that's the part where once you pass that, you'll basically get a PhD. Yeah. Uh, but it's just a matter of time. But the three exams are really hard. Like a lot of schools, it's like a 50% pass rate first time. Then you take it a second time. Wow. If you don't pass them all. But it's basically studying three subjects in so much detail, like, you know, everything in the textbook. Yeah. And the professor can ask you, like, any question in a textbook. And you study for, like, six months for this. Are they created specifically so, for you? Like, just, do you have, like, three professors uh, who create no, the test? No, not necessarily. There's, like, like, maybe there's, like, ten students that near the same test. The same test, get the same oral exam for the ten students. Okay, so Basically, some sort of standardization. Like You're in front of a whiteboard, and they just kind of ask you questions. And they want you to, like... Well, let's see how you think through it. Hmm. That they don't ask you a question like have one answer. They want you to kind of work through it and see how your mind works. And Wait, so this is a live test? Like, yeah, it's a live test. No way. You stand up at a whiteboard and like work out yeah. your thoughts? That's crazy. Yeah. It's very special. But you practice it a lot. Yeah. It, it, prepares you, it prepares you to give talks in the future and to kind of be composed under pressure. So, so what about uh, like exit opportunities? It's, it's obviously like you, you could go into professorship uh, eventually, but what, what do new yeah. PhDs typically do? Well, the main direction you can go is in academia, where you usually become a postdoc first in a lab. You do a postdoc for a few years and try to get professorship. Uh, I have some friends that went straight from uh, their PhD to be a professor. Hmm. Uh, that's possible if you've done a lot of research and have a lot of papers published. But besides being in academia like that, you can join a national lab uh, where basically you work as like a research scientist. It's kind of like a postdoc. You get paid more. You're working on more non just academic research, more some of it's like uh, military application or more like fundamental science. Uh, and then a third opportunity is work in industry. So there's a lot of companies, especially engineering, that will hire PhDs, uh, grads because of their specific area of expertise, or just because they're, they have a PhD degree and they're kind of good problem, independent problem solvers. Hmm. And, and that's the, the path you're on, right? Yeah, so I work at Apple right now on the Havix team, the product designer. So I definitely use some of the background in like designing experiments and kind of analyzing data uh, and designing products. So I'll, I'll top secret, so, uh, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I'm not going into too much detail. All I heard is that we're getting Apple hummingbirds, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> I can't comment on that. <laughs> can't confirm or deny. No. <laughs> That's great. So, like, to be aware, like, you're doing a PhD, spend days, months, even years working on things that don't end up working out in the end. So, for example, I worked on these sensors that I was designing for like a year and a half. At the end of the experiment, we realized we had some temperature drift issues. So after like putting so much effort into designing this sensor, we ended up having to scrap it and like buy a different sensor. Oh no. Uh, and it, it, it was kind of frustrating at first, but in the end, I realized that because we put the effort into this initial sensor, we were able to like show a proven concept that we could make this measurement. We're able to get a big draft to fund the purchase of the other sensors. And then also that the, the learning I did with the these sensors really helped me a lot in like future job interviews and uh, also just kind of learning how to tackle problems. That's interesting. Is, is that more accepted than in something like industry? I'm sure there's R&D. Oh, yeah. yeah. Industry, things are a lot more, you need a lot faster results and you can't, spend so much time working on like something that's going to be a dead end is is there pressure like what what sort of pressure exists to publish papers and get grants uh, it's all how you manage it really like everyone deals with pressure differently uh i think it's all about kind of self-confidence hmm. that the work you're doing is good and you get if you get good positive feedback from your colleagues and your advisor and like we give cases at conferences and you'll feel more comfortable about that, maybe less pressure. But I think some people do feel a lot of pressure. Uh, and once, you are, once you're a professor, uh, you'll feel more pressure. I think the higher you go, the more pressure you feel. So I guess there's one, one last question for you. Yeah. Um, the, the name of the podcast is Somebody Call a Doctor. So what what's an emergency situation somebody would need to call you? Uh, actually, I have often called or text for this specific emergency no uh, situation. And uh, everyone knows me as, like, the hummingbird researcher. So whenever someone has a hummingbird trapped in their house, <laughs> I'm the first person they call. That's great. So I can explain to you right now the best thing Please do. Please do. So ideally, you're in a room where you can turn off all the lights and close the blinds. What the hummingbird will do in that case is it'll stop kind of flying. And you can use, like, your phone as a flashlight. And sign it at a, like a, a curtain or something that the hummingbird will go to. I'll perch on the curtain and then you turn the light off and the hummingbird won't fly in the dark. So you can go and you can grab it with your hands or maybe in a cloth. With your hands? And take it. I mean, maybe I would recommend that for other people. <laughs> for me, I've handled so many hummingbirds that I know how to handle them. But yeah, for someone else, I guess you can like get like a towel or... Just be very delicate, I'm sure. I mean, you you could use your hand, like kind of cup it, and leave your hand closed and go outside and let it go. But basically, don't squeeze it at all. Yeah. That's the easiest thing to do if it's you turn off the light. If you can't turn off the light, if like in the middle of the day, they'll fly at like a window forever until it's time, basically. Hmm. And eventually, it'll get tired and it'll like just drop drop down on the window until it hits some like ledge or something. And then you can go and you can pick it up and take it outside. You really just don't want to squeeze it. They're so delicate. Yeah. Um, so in your 10 weeks in Costa Rica, which is incredible, um, 
did you name any of the hunting hummingbirds that you caught? Uh, no, we try not to name the animals you experiment with. Bad practice. Oh, okay. Uh, we we name them by like the species. We have like kind of a a code name for, for like the little bracelet on their ankle. Species code and then like a individual code. But there's too many to name. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're cute though. And for example, for for birds, they don't like look that different. They don't have the like, personalities. Maybe if you have a pet bird without personality, but yeah, the hummingbirds didn't have too much of personality. And I was in friends with parrots who would very much so disagree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Hey, well, thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting. Um, really excited to see what you end up doing with uh, at Apple and, and beyond um, once you're allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for talking about the process of getting the PhD and just just the whole whole experience. Yeah. Well, All right. Well. Um, yeah. Have a good one, man. Th- I'll yeah, talk to you later. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the very first episode of Somebody Call a Doctor. For more information on Rivers and his hummingbirds, check out our website at somebodycallaphd.com. If you know a recent PhD candidate or graduate who's doing interesting work worth sharing, let us know by emailing us at somebodycallaphd at gmail.com. See you next time on Somebody Call a Doctor.